0: Jesus went up onto the mountain and began to preach to his disciples. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And Father, as we dig into this passage of Scripture this morning, it is our prayer that you would allow us to see and recognize once again all that Jesus has done for us. We are grateful for his sacrifice. We are grateful that he took our sin upon himself, that we might be saved. We're thankful that we can call you Father. Get me out of the way this morning. Let us see Jesus only. For it's in his mighty name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. I want to share something with you this morning that hopefully will um, provide a bit of freedom for you. You know, Paul wrote in Galatians 5.1, for freedom Christ has set you free. And so there's a purpose um, for our being set free, and so often we get bogged down with um, the have tos or what we perceive to be the have tos. And the fact of the matter is, Jesus has done it all for us. He has accomplished everything on our behalf, and that's what I want us to see this morning, as we look at at this this passage of Scripture. After his baptism and being tempted in the wilderness, Jesus went to Galilee. And he called Simon and Andrew and James and John. The Bible tells us that Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Remember that, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among his people. Verse 24 in chapter 4 of Matthew says, So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. It was in front of those crowds, and specifically to his disciples, that Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, a portion of which we just read. And that portion of scripture is known as the Beatitudes. Now, if we were to go around the room and ask, what are the Beatitudes? What might your answer be? Are they lofty goals for the believer? Are they demands by God of his people? Are they rules for the Christian life? Are they commands to the believer, informing the believer as to how he or she is to live? Most of us have probably heard the Beatitudes preached and taught as all of those demands, commands, rules, goals. That is, you are to be poor in spirit. You are to be merciful. You are to thirst, hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's up to you. But preaching the Beatitudes as commands strips them of the gospel message Jesus was proclaiming. Teaching them as demands by God of us renders the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus proclaimed null and void because teaching them as requirements by God of us causes us to fall into a works righteousness mindset. Almost setting aside what Jesus has done on our behalf. Why is that? Why do we default to that? Why do we think it's up to us to earn or maintain our salvation? It's because we automatically default to that. It's just part of who we are. It's how we're made up. I have to do more and try harder. We're going to take a look at these verses this morning and hopefully walk away understanding that they are not commands, but instead that they are descriptions of the Christian, descriptions of the character of the Christian, descriptions of one who has truly been saved by grace alone through faith alone and the finished work of Christ alone. And all of that is a result of God's Spirit at work in us at redemption and during the rest of our lives during sanctification. These things are a direct result of God's grace in our lives. The Beatitudes, as one writer put it, take our gospel temperature. They are engaged to see if and how well we understand God's grace. If we default to a works righteousness mindset, we have reason to question how well we understand God's grace in the gospel. Now, it's important to recognize there's nothing we can do to earn or maintain favor with God. We know that. We're not capable of the ethical transformation that would be necessary to earn or maintain his favor. That transformation takes place at the point of salvation when we come alive. And, God's, it, and it takes place as God's spirit is at work in us after salvation, sanctifying us, making us more like Jesus. It's also important to see and understand that in verses 3 to 11, there's not one command. There's not one command in what we just read, verses 3 to 11. Now stick with me here. In the New Testament, there are what are called imperatives, which are commands, self-explanatory. But there are also what are called indicatives, which are the fruit of the redemptive work of God in Christ through the Holy Spirit. The indicative simply states something as being a fact based upon what Jesus did on the cross. If an action really occurs, has occurred, or will occur, it will be rendered as an indicative, as something that is true. Again, it's the fruit of what Jesus did on our behalf on the cross. It is what we are because of what he did. In other words, what we are spiritually is because of the work of Jesus, because of what he has done for us. Not because we woke up one day and decided to be better. We can all testify to those self-improvement projects we tend to take on every so often. If you're like me, you wind up face planning after a day or two, right? Why is it? It's because we cannot affect any lasting change in ourselves apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We try to do it ourselves. We will fail every single time. Amen. Every time. The obedience... Obedience to the Lord is possible because of the indicatives, because of what Christ has already done on our behalf. That is why we can respond in obedience to the commands in Scripture. In fact, I have yet to find a command in the New Testament that is not preceded by an indicative, something that Jesus has already done on our behalf that enables us to obey the command. I mean, I can't imagine trying to to obey the, the commands of the New Testament on my own. I can't imagine trying that. I know I've tried I've tried it and it doesn't work I point this out to help us see that the descriptions that Jesus is laying out here in verses 3 to 11 are all in the indicative we are because of what he has done so Jesus is describing the present reality of those who are his he's describing the character of those who are his all because of what he accomplished on our behalf by his life and his sacrificial, sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection. He did it for us because we are unable to do it. So we need to take a look at the first couple of words in each um, verse. Blessed are. You'll see every single one of them begins with blessed are. And I'm going to kind of look at it backwards. I'm going to look at the word are first. He's saying we are blessed, not we will be blessed or we might be blessed. He's saying to us that that being blessed is a present state of being. It is a present reality in our lives as believers. Jesus uses the word blessed to describe the state of being happy, the state of being happy. Happy though, as it is translated in some, some versions of the Bible, doesn't do the text justice because It communicates a subjective one-sided emotion or state of being. The word blessed, on the other hand, refers to an objective, unbiased status or condition. The people Jesus is describing, believers, you and me, are blessed because we have experienced God's amazing grace in salvation. And those who experience this objective, present state of being are those who have experienced it at salvation. Jesus is is describing his people, not those who reject him. How are we blessed? Well, each of these descriptions um, describe a a, a blessing that we experience. We're comforted, satisfied, we inherit the earth. So knowing all that, let's look at each of the characteristics of the true believer. Jesus said in verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is kingdom of heaven the poor in spirit are believers who recognize the fact that they're morally bankrupt they recognize they have absolutely nothing to offer to god they know they can never keep the law those whose hearts have been gripped by the reality of the gospel of grace recognize their desperate need for jesus desperate need for jesus we all have it and and we have a desire jesus says to live completely dependent upon the lord we see who we are for who, what we are. And apart from Jesus, we're nothing. It all has to do with how we view ourselves in light of the cross. This poverty of spirit is a fundamental characteristic of the Christian. In fact, all the Christian characteristics that are described in the Beatitudes that follow are, in a sense, a result of this particular one. Without getting too deep into it, it's not referring to being poor economically. Jesus is not making any reference to being poor financially, as some people have argued. And he says the poor in spirit possess the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, refers very very narrowly here to the possession of salvation. One writer says, quote, God describes his kingdom as a place that enjoys complete wisdom understanding, strength, fear of the Lord, justice, righteousness, faithfulness, and peace. Pretty complete, right? He goes on, indeed, in the kingdom of heaven, every aspect of salvation is fully realized. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Those who mourn are true, those who truly see the horrible nature of their sin, Because they are poor in spirit. They recognize the fact they're morally bankrupt. The word for mourn is a very strong word describing profound and deep sorrow of heart that leads to weeping and bitter tears. Not unlike how Jacob grieved when he was told that Joseph was dead. This mourning is a direct result of poverty of spirit. And it is a present, continuous experience in the life of the believer because we never completely put to death the sin that is ours. The more we grow in grace, the more we grow in the knowledge of God's holiness, the more you and I are acutely aware of our sin, and the more you and I are sensitive to offending God. R.W. Glenn wrote, quote, Mourn your sins of disobedience against God. Mourn the folly of your own overt rebellion against him. And mourn all the currency that you think you can offer God from your spiritual bank account. End quote. What do we have in our spiritual bank account in and of ourselves? Nothing. Zero. Those who really get the gospel will be characterized by the mourning Jesus described. Those who have some understanding that it is their sin that nailed Jesus to the cross, they will be the ones that mourn, as Jesus is talking about here. The comfort that's described by Jesus is comfort from the Father himself. Think about it. One day, there will be no more mourning over our sin. Verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The one who is meek is the one who recognizes their spiritual poverty, and the one who, as a result, mourns his sin. A recognition of spiritual poverty and mourning, it is that person who will be humble-minded. The meek is humble-minded. Why humble-minded? It's because we realize that we are sinners who are wholly unworthy of salvation. Because we recognize we have nothing good in us. This person, the meek person, does not go around thinking they're more spiritual than another person. They don't go around thinking they have a lock on righteousness. One man wrote, God takes men that are prideful, angry, bitter, mean, unmerciful, vehement, and impetuous, and by his grace, by his grace, God enables them to be humble, gentle, merciful, forgiving, and patient. Also, the meek individual will not discount God's sovereignty thinking he knows better than God. Nor will the meek individual try to neuter God's word by trying to make it say something it doesn't say. Only men who are haughty and full of themselves will set aside the doctrine and ethics of Scripture and replace them with their own conjecture, theory, and practices. Instead of rebelling against the providence of God, the meek person will submit humbly to his providence, assuming a position of complete humility before God. After all, it is the Lord who determines the course of history in our personal lives, in our church, and in our country. We don't understand it all the time. That's a given. But that does not negate the sovereignty of God over his creation. D.A. Carson wrote that that meekness is freedom from malice and a vengeful spirit. So when someone harms us or sins against us, We don't respond with a nasty, cruel, or vindictive attitude. When someone launches a verbal attack against us, even if we have a good defense, we choose to allow ourselves to be disparaged and denigrated as opposed to being bitter or spiteful. We do not fret or scheme to get even. A number of years ago somebody sinned against me and my family grievously. And you know what I was doing? I wasn't being meek and humble. I was fretting. I was trying to figure out how I could get even. I was had a vengeful spirit. I was not meek. God slapped me upside the head and got my attention. Took a while, but God did the work in me. We don't need to defend ourselves. Jesus, who is the perfect example of meekness, did not offer a defense against the false allegations during his unjust trials. No, he trusted the Father for vindication. He is our defender. Only understanding the grace of God can make us meek. It's all about God's grace in our lives. And he says, the meek shall inherit the earth. It, re- it refers to a reversal in one's situation. That is, we were lost, now we have been found. We were lost, destined for hell, and now we've been saved. The inheritance has to do with God's grace and our salvation, sanctification, and eventual glorification once we are with him. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Interesting that Jesus chose some of the um, deepest needs that we have, the deepest yearnings that we have, hunger and thirst to describe this. Righteousness here is the deep yearning to live as God requires. It is an eagerness for right conduct and doing the will of God. This yearning and desire is the natural outcome of understanding the gospel of grace. Who are those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness? It is those whose deepest cravings are for God's righteousness. And that dovetails with meekness, the the humility. It's those who recognize that it's God's righteousness that matters, not their own pursuit of their own righteousness. For example, when you and I hunger and thirst for recognition or approval or fame or to be recognized as competent or whatever, we're chasing after the wind, pursuing our own righteousness. May as well just be batting at the air. Those who hunger and thirst for God's righteousness are those who have recognized that their righteousness and their identity is not in what they do, but that their identity is in Jesus alone and that their righteousness is because of Jesus alone. In order to have a righteousness that is perfect before God, we have to be perfect, and we cannot. So we are not to be pursuing our own righteousness through self-salvation projects or doing more and trying harder. No, as believers, we abandon the pursuit of our own righteousness. We rejoice in the righteousness that is ours in Jesus. It's all about him, right? It's all about Jesus. It's all about what he's done on our behalf. It was Jesus that was perfect. He kept the law perfectly. He never sinned. He fulfilled all the requirements, of, if you will, of a perfect life. And at the end of his life, he said, it is finished. He did not say, it will be finished if those who believe will pursue their own righteousness. The fact of the matter is, you and I cannot achieve perfection. We can only receive such perfection as a gift, and we receive it at the point of salvation. Such a gift is the result of what Jesus did on our behalf on the cross. Paul put it really well in 2 Corinthians 5. He said, For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. And the being satisfied that Jesus talked about, the Greek word means stuffed. The SAT word is satiated. I almost missed it. Third, He's talking about our thirst being quest, uh, quenched and our hunger being gone because we will be with him. Blessed are the merciful. Verse 7, for they shall receive mercy. To be merciful is to really care about another and to show it. To be merciful is to really care about another person and to show it. It's not just enough to care. We are called to show it. Tim Keller wrote that it's not just feeling compassion for another, but moving beyond the feeling to intentional kindness is how he put it. That's exactly what Jesus did during his ministry here on earth. He intentionally was compassionate. He intentionally was kind-hearted. He intentionally was gracious. Those who have experienced the mercy shown to them by Jesus will naturally be merciful. They will show it. Now, I got a friend, actually two, and they're women. And I don't mean that mean. I'm just saying my wife is, has the gift of mercy. And most women I know tend to have the gift of mercy or a part of, you know, a, a, a bit of it. These two gals will tell you, I got no mercy in my body, right? Their kids will tell say amen. And, yeah, but the fact of the matter is, if we're believers, we do have mercy. We are capable of mercy. It is a natural outcome of the gospel to be merciful, to care about others, and to show it. We have experienced so much mercy from God in salvation, and an understanding of the gospel of grace will naturally result in our showing mercy this intentional kindness to other people. It won't be forced, or it won't result from a sense of duty, but it will flow naturally. Because Jesus showed mercy on the cross, we are therefore God's conduits of mercy. The fact of the matter is God continuously shows his people mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What's Jesus talking about when he's talking about the pure in heart? We all know um, that over and over again, Jesus told us that out of our hearts come the sin that we engage in, the sin that we commit. All sin has its root in our hearts. What he's talking about is an attitude of the heart. He's talking about the inner life of the believer. Not what other people see, but we, what we see and God sees. Who we really are. On the inside. Certainly Jesus had Psalm 24 in mind. Which says. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord. And who shall stand in his holy place. He who has clean hands. And a pure heart. Does not lift up his soul to what is false. And does not swear deceitfully. Of course Jesus is the only one that's worthy. To ascend the hill to worship. But because of what he did for us. We can worship with a pure heart as believers. Not only that, but Jesus is talking about having our affections toward him alone, unhindered by the lures and temptations of this world. One author defined affections this way. Affections are the movement of our thoughts, feelings, and will towards a desired object, person, or event. And affection is what inclines us to something. Affections are what move us toward action. And we pray, asking God to kindle our affections toward him, toward his work, toward his kingdom, his glory. And this action that our affections move us toward certainly is borne out in how we relate to one another. Loving our neighbor as ourselves. The attitudes of our hearts, need to be pure toward our neighbor, real and willing to admit that, hey, we're still works in progress. We're train wrecks. God's still at work. The Puritan Thomas Watson wrote, the hypocrite, get this, the hypocrite suspects others and has charitable thoughts of himself. The sincere Christian has charitable thoughts of others and suspects himself, right? Again, it's about the attitude of our heart. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. In describing the peacemaker, Jesus is not talking about making peace among the nations or breaking up fights at the local bar. No, he's referring to those who seek to make spiritual peace, telling others about Jesus, about the peace that is available in a relationship with him, declaring the truth of the gospel. To those who do not know Jesus and to each other in the church. We all need to hear the gospel every single day. We all need to be reminded of what Jesus did for us. Every single day. It's all about the peace of God and peace with God that Jesus made with us through his work on the cross. It's about the peace of God and peace with God that is ours through the power of the gospel. This peacemaking is the work of God. It is his work in our lives. We can no more become peacemakers on our own than the man in the moon. We cannot produce this peacemaking in our lives because we are totally self-reliant and egocentric. If it depended upon us, our peacemaking would be totally ruined by sin if we did it, tried to do it in and of ourselves. Finally, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The persecution that Jesus is talking about is persecution that results from believers living Christ-like lives. He's talking about persecution that comes because we have trusted Jesus with our very lives. And this persecution, understand, comes as opposition from those whose interests or view of self may be threatened by the righteousness that we display, that has been uh, given to us by, by God. When you and I stand for Jesus, when you and I live for him out loud, you and I will be reviled. We will be persecuted. We will have all sorts of evils sp- spoken falsely against us. When I was working the street with the sheriff's office, there was one guy I worked with. He hated God. Hated God. As a result, he hated me and made no bones about it. He despised and berated me for my beliefs. He hounded and harassed me. He uttered all kinds of nasty, vile things against me falsely because of Jesus. I expect that most, if not all of you, can relate similar experiences where you encountered that kind of aggression. It's here in verse 12, in this regard, when people revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely because of Jesus, it's here in verse 12 we have the first command from Jesus in this discourse. He says, Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What what he's saying is, you rejoice continually, habitually, and actively at the moment of such despicable treatment. He's saying, you be glad. Exult continually, habitually at the moment of persecution. Why? Because in, in experiencing such things, you and I are blessed because... Our reward is present tense. Our reward is great in heaven. How? By way of the salvation that has been given to us as a gift by God. No strings attached. Now, one thing of note. Jesus said, under all kinds of evil against you, falsely on my account. Keyword here is falsely. People will say evil things about you and me because of our faith in Jesus. But Jesus is talking about all kinds of evil spoken against the believer falsely. Therefore, brother and sister, let no one have opportunity to speak evil against you truthfully. Now, I asked you to remember that Jesus in chapter 4 was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. All that he taught in verses 3 to 11 are the results of the gospel in the lives of the believer. Being poor in spirit, mourning, being meek or humble, hunger and thirsting for righteousness, being merciful, pure in heart, being a peacemaker, telling others about Jesus. All of that is a result of what Jesus did on our behalf. Jesus exhibited these characteristics perfectly for every true believer. It's not up to us to try to force ourselves into a mold. Jesus is the mold, and his righteousness has been credited to us. He develops these characteristics in our lives. He is the one who causes us to be poor in spirit, to be meek, or to be merciful. Don't be fooled by those who would push a moralistic, legalistic, man-centered belief system on you, teaching things like, it's up to you to earn and maintain favor with God. Or the central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about yourself. Or God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Or good people go to heaven when they die. It's vitally important to understand that these character qualities Jesus is describing are all the fruit of the gospel. It's only because of Jesus' finished work on the cross that we can be poor in spirit, that we can mourn, that we can be merciful. These character qualities or descriptions apply to every single believer. There aren't any exceptions. These descriptions are focused on the spiritual and not the material. Most people today would expect to hear the exact opposite. Today we hear it's all about you. You've got to look out for you. We hear what others think of you is important. You have to work to get the respect of others. Your identity is wrapped up in what you do and what others think of you. That's all garbage. What we do in life, in our career, in our families, in our church is not who we are. What talents and abilities we may have do not define us. No, instead Jesus would have us realize and see that our identity is in him and in him alone. What we are is a result of his finished work on the cross and not a result of us trying to prove ourselves. The blessings Jesus talks about are a result of what he did, not what we do. They're a result of being part of his kingdom. You and I cannot produce an attitude of poverty, of spirit, meekness, or mercy. We can't produce um, godly mourning over sin or the purity of heart that Jesus talked about. It's only because of his grace that we are poor in spirit, that we mourn, that we are merciful, and so on. These attitudes in believers, these character qualities are produced by the Holy Spirit as he sanctifies us, as he makes us more like Jesus. It's a result of God's amazing grace at work in our lives, period. Aren't you thankful for that? And Father, we are so thankful for your work in us. You You told us that you have begun a good work in us and that you will bring it to completion. Cause us, Lord, to be more and more like Jesus described, poor in spirit, merciful, hungering and thirsting for your righteousness, pure in heart. We ask you, Lord, to continue your work in us, sanctifying us, making us more like Jesus. And, Father, enable us to live out these character qualities, these things that describe the believer. Your grace is amazing. We're so thankful for Jesus, and it's in his mighty name we pray. Amen.